Hey, this is Matt Stacy, youth pastor at New Life, and this is our podcast. I hope that the preaching and teaching you listen to here encourages you and strengthens you in your walk with God. This podcast is a ministry of New Life, and as such, is completely free to the listener. That being said, if you feel led to give to this ministry, we want to make that available to you. You can text GIVE to 833-793-0451. You can also give online through the Tithely app by searching New Life Tabernacle. Thank you, and we hope you enjoy the message. everybody the king is among us I love that we are in our 19th uh, lesson of our study of revelation and we are almost midway through the book of revelation as far as the timeline is concerned Uh, we believe at this point this is almost midway through the tribulation as far as the book of Revelation is concerned. Um, And so that's where we're at tonight. Let's pray over this and then we're going to dive right into the Word. Jesus, we thank You so much for another opportunity to study Your Word. God, we are so grateful. We're so grateful for this opportunity. Lord, I ask You to help me to teach in a way that You can anoint. Help me to say something worth saying to these precious people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. See if we're working. We are. It makes me smile. (laughs) Praise God. Um, 19th lesson of the study of... I feel like we just started yesterday on this study. Uh, We're moving along uh, very quickly through our study. By way of review, um, we talk about what we just studied uh, last week. Last week, the we studied the sixth trumpet being blown. The second half of chapter 9, uh, we looked at what happened. As the sixth trumpet was, br- was blown, four bound angels are released. We looked at... Um, Where they were released, they were released uh, at the Euphrates River. As they were released, um, the context suggests that they led what comes next. And what came next is an army of, uh, demonic, uh, a demonic army of 200 million, um, that marched against humanity at the time. These demonic warriors, if you will, uh, were wearing armor 
interestingly enough. They were riding on, if you can remember, horse-like creatures, had the head of a lion. Uh, this is just how John describes it, head of a lion. Um, he had a tail that was like a serpent's, resembled a serpent's anyways, and had heads of their own. So kind of a crazy-looking um, individual. We have a phone going off. Praise God. There we go. Amen. It's going to happen just that quickly, too, and we're going to be out of here in a blink of an eye. So, praise God. Anyways, so this is the demonic army that is marching um, against humanity at this time. Uh, we talked about last week, and we'll, we'll make it clear even more as we go throughout the book of Revelation, but unless the Bible specifically gives us a clue... Uh, that suggests that something is to be taken symbolically, it's best to take it literally. Um, and so we look at this and, and there are people that read this and they read, you know, uh, we talked, Sister Brittany at one point could see helicopters coming out of the ground and, and that's not alone that people have seen this in scripture and then you look at the end of chapter 9 and we have uh you know I've I've read everything from jet planes fighter jets to tanks and all of that the only problem is the bible doesn't say anything like that or even close to that and um as crazy as this sound I said it last week I'll say it again this week I know it's kind of funny to say this but I know it's true that John had never seen anything like that, right? Anything like modern warfare. He didn't know what a tank was or what a jet was. But Brother Jeff, I think he could have done a better job describing what he was seeing than saying a horse with the head of a lion. So anytime you see a horse with the head of a lion, uh, I don't think tank. So um, we'll just we'll just assume that John was as close as he could get to accurate as possible. Um, and he described what he saw as best as possible. So this demonic army is released. They're given permission to kill. In fact, they kill, uh, they kill a third of humanity wiped out. And I, I note, we note that because the previous demonic army that's released in the first half of chapter nine, uh, they're only given permission to torment humanity. This army, though, that's released uh, with the sixth trumpet actually is given permission to kill, and they end up killing a third of humanity. That means at this point, a th uh, over half of humanity that was left after the rapture, um, over half of humanity has been killed at this point. I was reading the other day. It's interesting. People have different views on the book of Revelation, and I understand that. And I, I don't, by the way, believe that um, that we should divide over these issues. I believe that we should stay friends, keep talking, and argue these issues out. Uh, so I don't think that I don't think this is a salvation issue. However, I'm listening to someone talk the other day, and their argument. Um, they were kind of talking the post tribulation view, and their argument is: is we're going through tribulation now, and the world's always been going through tribulation. And while I agree that the world is in a very bad place and uh, turmoil is everywhere, and I believe that, and I and I know it to be true as a student of history, that there were several times throughout history that is awful. Um, 
very, very terrible times throughout human history. However, as bad as those are, they, they are not equivalent to what is going to be faced in the great tribulation. So I do think that we, we should, we should, there should be a difference there that is made. They don't make a difference there. I see a great difference as I'm reading the book of Revelation in what the world is going to experience and what the world has experienced so far. That being said, the worst part about what we studied, at least I believe, last week is that after all of this, after all of the, after over half of humanity being killed, after chaos at a level unprecedented, the world has never seen anything like this. We read at the end of chapter nine that the world still refuses to repent after all of that is going on. And by the way, the fact that they refuse to repent suggests what? That they have an opportunity to repent. So there are those that say that if you miss the rapture, you've missed the boat. Well, there, the Bible suggests that God's hand of mercy is still outstretched at that time. The problem is, is people have hardened their hearts so much that they refuse to repent no matter what God does, no matter how much wrath is poured out, no matter how much judgment is poured out. They refuse to repent. In fact, uh, it seems to suggest that they actually doubled down on their rebellion and double down on their demonic worship and their refusal to repent. So it's an extremely, extremely uh, terrible time. And I believe that that would be the saddest place in all of Scripture, aside from King Agrippa telling Paul that you've almost persuaded me. I think both of those are, are possibly the saddest Scriptures in the entire Bible. So that's our review of last week. As an introduction to this week, we're, we're looking at chapter 10 today, tonight. And this is, if you remember um, our study of chapter 7, we call chapter 7 a pause or an intermission, a break in the action. Um, because up until that point, judgment's pouring out, pouring out. All of a sudden, you get, you get kind of a break. And then you have more judgments that are poured out. And then we have chapter 10, which is another pause in the action, if you will. So it kind of shows us a different glimpse of what's going on um, at the end time. This is going to last from, and we'll study this next week as well, it's going to last from our study tonight all the way through chapter 11 and verse number 14. It's, a, it's an intermission, if you will, a pause in the outpouring of judgment. This pause uh, prepares us for what's going to come next. The pause, as you're going to see, is very important, very needed. And it's needed because it provides encouragement uh, to the people of God. Um, it provides encouragement to us because if you read too much of that, it's easy to, uh, even though we believe we're going to be out here, it's still easy to get down uh, by what we're reading in the book of Revelation. But we see this pause and we're going to discover uh, some great things tonight in chapter 11. As uh, one preacher put it, this is an unusual chapter. It's an unusual chapter. It's, it's very unusual in, in all of the Bible. There is an unusual angel that we find here. There's an unusual act. There's an unusual answer. There's an unusual announcement. And there's an unusual assignment. So it's a very unusual chapter, and I like that word. All of this, though, is intended to strengthen, to encourage the believer, and strengthen our resolve uh, in the Word of God. We're reminded 
as we go through this, as we look at chapter 10 tonight, that God is still in control, that Jesus is still in control. Because it's easy to read it and you're wondering to yourself, and definitely if you're alive at the time, you'll be wondering, uh, is God still in control? Does he still care? Absolutely, he's still in control, and he's going to confirm it in his word um, tonight. Let's look at the first four verses um, of Revelation 10. First four verses. And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book opened, and he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot on the earth, and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roareth. And when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered, and write them not. So this is fascinating, right? John sees uh, a mighty angel, and it's a mighty angel, and he's coming down uh, out of heaven, down to earth. We, we look at this mighty angel. What does John see according to scripture? He sees this angel clothed, the Bible says, with a cloud. Um, I, I've seen a lot of people try to see what that symbolizes, maybe judgment. We're not sure. Uh, a rainbow over the angel's head, um, kind of like a crown, a rainbow crown over the head of the angel, they were saying that that could symbolize mercy. Notice I said they were saying, and it's because I have a hard time, I really do, and I'm just being honest with the with the church, and, and I want the church to be able to read the Bible this way, to not just a, not read stuff into Scripture, but pull stuff out of Scripture. And I look at that, and it, it says that it is a there's, that he's clothed with a cloud, he's got a rainbow on his head, I can just take that literally. I don't know that that's symbolic of anything other than that's exactly what John sees. And so, got a rainbow on his head. His face shined like the sun. His feet were as pillars of fire. I think you could just describe this mighty angel as unusual. It's an unusual angel that has come down um, out of heaven down to earth. The question that we have to ask, though, is, and it's important, who is this mighty angel? It's important to these, to this entire chapter. When you look at this angel, there's a lot of people that see characteristics of Jesus in this angel. And so they have assumed that this is Jesus uh, that is coming down um, from heaven to earth. Uh, there are a lot of problems with this. I don't see this as being uh, Jesus. Number one, Jesus is never equated in the entire Bible and includes here to an angel. Jesus is never called an angel. Be careful. There are those that will tell you that Jesus showed up in the Old Testament as the angel of God, and it's certainly not true. Uh, my Bible says that he was begotten. He's the first begotten of the Father. Uh, in order to be begotten, you've got to be born. There has to be a start, a starting point. So he wasn't around in the Old Testament, as some would believe. He's never been referred to as an angel. So I don't think we can we can call this Jesus. Another problem that we have with him being Jesus is the fact that he came down from heaven to earth. Now, what's the problem with that? 
The problem with that is, now we believe in a first coming. Jesus came, he was, he was born of a virgin, uh, lived a perfect life, died, and ascended up to heaven. We also believe that there's going to be a second coming, that Jesus is going to come back a second time and establish his kingdom on the earth. The problem with this being Jesus here is now we have a third coming. So if this is Jesus and he comes from heaven to earth, this, this would make the second time, which would make the act, the second coming, the third coming. So that doesn't work, um, with the text either. So I don't necessarily believe that. The other issue, and I think this is the final issue, this finalizes it not being Jesus. I believe that this is just a, as John described it, a strong angel. How many believe that John, who walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, would be able to describe Jesus if he saw Jesus? I just believe that John would be able to figure that out. He calls this a, a, another strong angel. Another, the Greek word is alas, and it means another of the exact same kind. Another of, an, of the exact same kind. So where do we hear strong angel? We heard strong angel in chapter 5. You, you're, you've got the throne room and everyone standing around the throne and you've got uh, John standing there and all of a sudden John says he sees a strong angel, a mighty angel step forward and what did he do? He searched all the universe. He gave that universal call. Is anyone worthy to step forward to open the book? That was a mighty angel. That was a strong angel. And now John sees another, the Greek word being another of the exact same kind, strong or mighty angel. So John is saying, I'm seeing another exactly like the one that I saw before that I've already described in chapter 5. Amen. He's holding in his hand this mighty angel. He's holding in his hand a little book. Um, A lot has been made out of this little book. I think that this little book is um, I think it's little in, in comparison to the size of the angel that John is seeing. If you if you think about it, he's seeing an angel with his left foot on the earth and his right foot in the ocean, in the sea. So this is a massive angel that John is looking at. So of course, any book or scroll would look small in his hands. And so John uh, saw at the very beginning in chapter 5, he sees beside the throne the scroll. The only one worthy to open the scroll was Jesus. Jesus stepped forward. The lion of the tribe of Judah stepped forward, but John sees a lamb. He steps forward. He takes the scroll. He opens the scroll, right? And we've already been through the seven seals. Uh, a part of the seventh seal is what we're dealing with now in these seven trumpets. So I believe this is, this is the little book that the angel has in his hand. It's important to remember, um, as we go forward. That little book holds all of the judgments that are, it, it's the word of God. It holds all of the judgments that are going to come, uh, later as we go forward. As I just said, his right foot is on the sea. His left foot, uh, is on the earth. So this is a massive angel. Then we read in the text, the text mentions the seven thunders. So as um, John is looking at this angel, the angel, the Bible says, lets out a loud cry. And it's as if it's the sound of a lion's roar. So it's a fearful thing. It's a loud thing that John hears. Um, but as we'll see in verse number six, when we get there, 
it's very clear what the angel says. So he's not saying it's inaudible. He's just saying it's loud and it's fearful as he uh, cries out. As this happens, however, uh, Scripture says that seven thunders speak. Seven thunders speak. Now, again, this the Scripture doesn't illuminate what is the thunder that's speaking. Um, all I can assume is that outside, in that storm cloud, whatever it is, those clouds that are around the angel, um, there's thunder going on in it, and out of that thunder, there are clear voices that apparently John hears. He hears seven. Um, they all say something. And then John gets ready because what is his job right now? His job, his job is to write down everything. He was given that instruction at the beginning of the book of Revelation. Write down everything that you see, that you hear. He hears these seven thunders. He gets ready to write it down. And a voice comes to him and says, stop. Don't write this down. He says, seal this up. This is the only place in the Bible, the only time in the, in the, in the book of Revelation, rather, where something is sealed up. All the rest of the times, things are being unsealed. They're being loosed. Here, he seals up these sayings. So apparently, this is just uh, for John. Apparently, John here gets a special word from God. He hears these sayings, and they're just for him, for his ministry. There are some things this shows us that it's not for us to know. There are certain things that God will impart to whom he will impart and he will keep from whom he will keep. And we won't know it until we get to the other side and we know all things as he knows all things when we get to heaven. But until then, there are some things that we just have to say we don't know. And that's why I'm comfortable as I go through the book of Revelation on certain things uh, that come along. Like next week, we're going to talk about the two witnesses. I won't give anything away uh, already, uh, but those are that's a very tough to figure out and talk about and think about. But we're going to do that next week, and we're going to have a good time. So, seven thunders come forth. That was apparently a word just for John. Nobody's going to know that until uh, we get to heaven. Let's look at verses 5 through 7. And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth, lifted up his hand to heaven, and swear by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are there, that therein are, and the earth and the things that therein are, and the sea and the things which are therein, that there should be time no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall be, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished as he hath declared to his servants, the prophets. So here we are. We've got the mighty angel and the mighty angel. He makes a promise. He makes a vow, if you will. He raises his right hand and he makes a vow. It's a promise. It's an oath. Very similar uh, to what we would do in our courtrooms today, although I'm not sure how many people today actually take it seriously, the vow, the oath that they make when they put their right hand on the Bible and they promise to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. But this angel here, he, he has a vow, he has a promise that he makes. He raises his right hand, he, uh, he makes this vow. He vows that there will be no more delay. Now, I said that this would be encouraging for the church, and it is. The church at this time, 
the the uh, the the church that is um, well, it's encouraging for the church that's here today. It's also encouraging for believers that are alive at that time. The Lord says, if you remember that promise that He made to the martyrs a few chapters ago, the Lord says uh, through this angel that there will be no more delay. That's what He means by there be time no more. That word there, it's delay. There will be no more delay that he is immediately going to start pouring out his wrath upon the earth in a unmeasured way. See, everything before this point, and that's why it's going to start getting deep and as we continue our study as the weeks go on, uh, everything until this point has been very measured. Almighty God has been very measured. He's been pouring out his judgment and his wrath, but not all the way. He's been holding back some things. Little by little, it's getting worse and worse. Now the angel steps forward and says, I've got a promise, I've got a vow, and that is that there's going to be no more delay, that Jesus is going to claim his rightful spot as king, and he's going to pour out his wrath um, on the earth completely without measure. The full wrath of God is going to be poured out without measure. And Jesus will take his rightful place as, as king of all. That's what we're going to see through the rest of the book of Revelation as we continue our study. The angel makes the promise. This is the watershed moment. This is the moment where everything changes, where, where things start to kick up and, and become very serious. Uh, it's already been serious. Half the world has been killed at this point uh, because of the judgment of God. But the wrath of God is getting ready to be poured out in a measure that the world has never seen, even up until this point. So the next question that has to be asked is we have to talk about the mystery. What is the mystery? Because the angel says that that mystery is going to be uh, revealed or fulfilled. And so you ask, what is the mystery? The mystery is the fulfillment of everything that was preached about the coming kingdom of God. Everything in the Old Testament, every prophet that ever prophesied uh, about the coming kingdom of the Lord is going to be, it's going to be fulfilled. He says that word that he gave to his servants is going to be revealed. It's going to be fulfilled. So when the, when that time comes, when God decides to pour out his full wrath upon the earth, vindication is what that is. At that point, every preacher that's ever preached faithfully the word of God is going to be vindicated. They're going to be proven right. Those Old Testament prophets that have been mocked, that are even mocked to this day as just men, as, as men that had great imagination, but that's all that they had. Uh, that's that they were just ordinary men and all of that kind of arguments and mockery that's coming. And a lot of uh, people today don't even credit a lot of the prophets with writing the books that have their names on it. But one day they're going to be vindicated. And my Bible says it's a promise from the word of God that that day is coming. And on that moment, that watershed moment, whenever he says, this is it, from, from now on, I'm pouring out my wrath, I'm coming to set up my kingdom. When Jesus sets up his kingdom, everyone that's ever preached the word of God is going to be vindicated. Amen. Because up until this point, remember, up until this point, people are, people are not repenting. 
People are not turning. People are still not believing. The church is going to be raptured out, and you would think, well, that's going to vindicate uh, the church. Well, it'll vindicate us as we're up there with the Lord, but the people that are still on the earth, they're going to come up with all kinds of excuses and theories on what happened to the population that was raptured away, the church that got raptured away. So the true vindication hasn't come yet, but when he pours out his wrath at this point, when this point gets here, and the Antichrist is doing his thing, and the devil's doing his thing, but Jesus steps on the scene and ends all of that and establishes his kingdom, the vindication is going to come. The vindication for all the prophets and all the preachers that have ever preached about this from the beginning until now. But it's specifically talking about the Old Testament prophets that are going to be vindicated. Should have been clicking as I was going through that. Verses 8 through 11, let's look at very quickly. And the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again and said, Go and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel, which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. And, and I went unto the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it and eat it up, and it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey, and as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Now this is fascinating. I love this. We're going to get into this. But I'm warm. Praise God. So this is that strange assignment that has been given, right? John is given a strange assignment. And I don't know how y'all would handle that. I don't know how I would handle that. The angel or the, the voice comes down that John hears and says that that book, that scroll that is in the angel's hands, you need to go and you need to eat it. And it's going to be sweet to taste, but it's going to be bitter in your stomach. And that's fascinating, right? And what's interesting, and I love this about John, John has been through too much with the Lord. He's got too much of a relationship with God. There's too many times where uh, we question so much of the Word of God and whether or not to believe the Word of God and whether or not to commit and that kind of thing. John's all in. The voice said, eat the scroll. John doesn't hesitate at all. According to scripture, he goes and he eats it. He just trusts that that's what the word of the Lord said to do. So that's what I'm going to do. So what does this mean? What is this showing us? Um, this is not, he's, he's told to eat the book. Um, it'll taste sweet, but become bitter. And this is not the first time that this term is used. So let's look at the other times in scripture where this term is used so we can find out uh, what scripture means when it's talking about eating the book, um, because this phrase has been used before. And again, always let scripture interpret scripture. It's called systematic theology. Um, too many times we pick out one scripture and we build an entire doctrine and theology over this one scripture and what we think it says and means. 
and disregard the rest of the voice of Scripture that's around it that's speaking to it. We have to listen to the whole voice of Scripture. So we have to ask ourselves when we're interpreting this, what is what, what happens to John? What's he going through? What does this mean? Is there anything similar to this in the entire Word of God? And as we see here in Jeremiah 15 and 16, there is a similar experience. He says, Thy words were found, and I did eat them, and thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of mine heart, for I am called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. So Jeremiah, he's using this phrase again here. He's saying, uh, I found the words of the Lord, and I ate them, and they were joy unto me and rejoicing to my heart. Not the only place that it's used. Let's look at Ezekiel 3, 1 through 3. He said, Moreover, he said unto me, Son of man, eat that thou findest, eat this roll, the roll is the scroll, he's talking about a book, and go speak unto the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he caused me to eat that roll. And he said unto me, Son of man, cause thy belly to eat, and fill thy bowels with this roll that I give thee. Then did I eat it, and it was in my mouth as honey for sweetness. So we've got that used three different times in Scripture. What is this talking about? Before we get into that, um, what is this talking about? I believe that this is referring to the act of eating the scroll. It symbolizes the absorbing and assimilating of God's Word. Absorbing and assimilating God's Word. Meditating on God's Word. Falling in love with God's Word. To the people of God, the Word is sweet. And that's why, and how do I get that? I got that out of, out of Jeremiah. You go to Jeremiah. He says, thy words were found and I did eat them and thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. So Jeremiah right there is talking about, and he didn't, he didn't refer to it in any other way. What he's talking about is assimilating that word, absorbing the word, just being all into the word, studying the word, being in alignment with the word of God. And then the same thing happens to Ezekiel. What's God telling Ezekiel to do? He's telling you, he's telling Ezekiel, I've got a message that I want you to give. I want you to get the whole message, fall in love with the whole thing and deliver it exactly as I'm giving it to you to the children of Israel. That's what he's referring to when he says this. To the people of God, as I said, the word of God, the entire word of God is sweet. We love the word of God. There are parts in this that, that, that do convict us and do prick our hearts. And whenever that happens, we rejoice and we praise God for loving us enough to show us in his word the places in our hearts that need to get right and the places in our lives that need to get right. We look at this. Why do we love the word of God? Why is it, why is it so sweet to the people of God? Why did Jeremiah call it the joy of his heart? And Ezekiel says that it was sweet like honey. And, and uh, John here in the book of Revelation says that it was sweet as well. Why? Right here in Psalms 19, uh, 7 through 11, I think it's summed up uh, perfectly. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, 
rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Here we go. Check this out. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. That's why it's so sweet to us. That's why it's sweet to the taste. That's why John said whenever it was going in my mouth, it was sweet to the taste. Jeremiah said it was joy to his heart. Yes, there are hard things in the word of God. Yes, there are tough things. Yes, there are things in the word of God that we've got to deal with and we need to pattern our lives after. But that ought to be joy to us because it says, Moreover by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. Amen. Praise God. So we love the word of God. We love the whole word of God. Every bit of the word of God. We're not, don't, don't put me as one of them preachers that love a portion of the word of God, but not the rest of the word of God. If the Lord tarries and he gives me enough time, I'd like to teach verse by verse from every verse in the entire Bible because I love it all, every bit of it. There's no part of the Bible that I would rather get rid of or I would rather not visit. I love the entire word of God. And why? Because it's all profitable. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and it is profitable. Amen. I'll move on, but that's important. So we see next, John is told to eat the word and it would be bittersweet. Now, to John's, I've, I've addressed how that applies to us as the people of God. But let's look at John's specific situation here. John specifically, he's, he's been told that he's going to eat this and it's going to taste bitter, but then it's going to, or it's going to taste sweet, but then it's going to become bitter once it gets in his stomach. You have to ask, why is this? Again, I believe that that book, uh, is the same book, uh, because I think the context shows us it's the same scroll that's been opened up that it shows all the judgments of God that's being poured out on the earth. And it's, it's really the title deed to the earth. It's showing how God and Jesus is reclaiming the earth for himself. So that's the book. So when John eats this, it's first of all, it's, it's joy. It's sweet to him. Why? Because there's victory. There's hope. He sees that he is going to be vindicated. The prophets are going to be vindicated. Everything that he's ever suffered and went through every trial has been worth it because the word of God is going to come true and it's going to be sure. But also you sense the heart of the prophet here in John. You sense the heart of the revelator, the heart of the man of God. Because as it goes down, it becomes bitter in his stomach. Why does it become bitter? Think about this. What's going to happen to the people that are left? John sees it and he knows that as true as there's going to be victory, as true as there's going to be hope for the believer, and as sure as there's going to be a heaven, It's also true that there's going to be a hell. It's also true that judgment is going to be poured out. That it's sure and that it's final, that it's set, that it's going to happen. And John realizes that. And there's a a bitterness to that. 
And there's a bitterness to every man of God that, that, that preaches the word of God. It, it's bittersweet. Brother Stacy, if you come talk to him, I'm sure that he would say the same thing. It's sweet because we love the word of God, but it's bitter because we know that those that don't repent and those that don't believe the word of God and those that don't get right with God, there's a date set with almighty God. Judgment is coming. And though it's slow, it's sure. And so John says, yes, that at first it's sweet, but then it does, it does become bitter because he realizes the truth. He sees what is coming to the earth. He, he sees what's, what's, what's going to happen. So then John is told, so, so you could call that bitter or you could call it sobering. It's a sobering, it's a sobering feeling knowing that the world is going to be judged, that it's going to happen. The unbelievers are going to be judged. Then John is told, and I love this, he says, the word of God says that he's going, he must prophesy again. And there's no doubt that this refers obviously to the rest of the book of Revelation. So you've, you've got to, basically, he, the, he's getting recommissioned. He's in the middle of his vision of the, in the book of Revelation, and he's getting a refresher, and he's getting a recommission. He's, he's getting a, uh, someone that's kind of encouraging him and telling you to continue on. Don't stop. So he's told, you're going to prophesy more. So he's got, a, he's got more that he's got to see. He's got, he's got more vision to proclaim, more prophecy to prophesy. But I love that it says that he is told that he will prophesy before many people, nations, tongues, and kings. When is this written? This is written at the end of John's life. John is an old dying man. He's on the Isle of Patmos. He's at the end of his life. And yet the word of the Lord comes to him and says that you've got more to continue to write. You're going to prophesy, but not just that, John, but you're going to prophesy to many people, to many nations, to tongues and kings. And we're standing here today in Oklahoma, thousands of miles away from the Isle of Patmos. And we've all, we've got the blood of different cultures in us. And all over the world, the Bible is the best selling book. And a part of the Bible is the book of Revelation. And right there is confirmation in the word of God that the word of God is true. His prophecy, he has prophesied through the book of Revelation to every tongue and to nations and to peoples and to kings. Reading the book of Revelation, I was listening to a story talking about kings. Winston Churchill wasn't a king, but he was a prime minister, so he would he would have been the, the head person in charge. And uh, he had um, he heard that uh, evangelist was holding uh, revivals, big revivals in the town that was near, and so he invites him to his uh, home and he wants to talk to the man and. The preacher walks in and Winston's chomping on a, on a big old cigar and, um, he got smokes filling the room and everything. And the preacher walks in and he pulls out his and he says, sir, I just brought you here because I wanted to know if you have any hope that you could give this old man. The, the world wants hope, right? And so there's a man. He's, he's second in charge in all of England and he's studying the word of God. Kings have studied the word of God. People are studying the word of God everywhere. That's a prophecy from the word of God that's been fulfilled. And I think that's exciting. So in closing, if the music wants to come, we're reminded tonight that ultimately, or at least I hope that you're reminded tonight, that ultimately God is in control. Jesus is still in control. And he's going to one day rule and he's going to reign and we're going to rule and reign with him. 
But the question is, is what do we do while we're waiting? What do we do in the meantime? What do we do while we're waiting for things to play out like they're going to play out? Like the word of God says they're going to play out. I think that we have encouragement from the word of God. I think we ought to do what Jeremiah did. We ought to do what Ezekiel did. And we ought to do what John did here in the book of Revelation. And that is we ought to eat the word. We ought to absorb the word. We ought to love it and we ought to live it. We ought to be in it every day. It ought to be the first thing that we read in the morning. It should be the last place that we visit at night before we go to bed. We ought to meditate on it. We ought to hide it in our hearts. Why do we hide the word in our heart? The psalmist said that we might not sin against him. You're struggling with sin. My question is, are you in the word? How much are you in the word? How much are you reading it? And are you studying it? Are you digging deep? And I'm not just talking about just a cursory glance. When's the last time you've just spent hours over five scriptures in the Bible? You just, you just spent a whole week just looking at five scriptures, just trying to get it in your heart and find out what's there. Not what it means to you. Don't do that. Don't read the Bible and be like, well, you know, this means this to me. Don't do that. What does the Bible actually mean? What does it say? What's it saying to everybody, not just me? What's, what's the word of God saying? Get into it. Eat the book. Absorb it. What should you do while you're waiting? That's what you should do. It's joy to the believer. We ought to love this book and be in this book and get in this book. Why? We ought to be thankful that we've still got it. You know, this is one of the only things that's going to endure forever. It's going to last forever. It's never going away. It's going to last forever. We ought to be inside this every day, aligning ourselves with the word of God. Won't have you raise your hand, but I wonder how are we doing on our yearly reading? Getting through the Bible once in a year. That's something that we can do. Getting into the word of God, loving it, absorbing it. I think that you should, those scriptures that I had up here tonight, it's Jeremiah 15 and 16, Ezekiel 3, 1 through 3. But specifically, I think I really like the way that Jeremiah 15 and 16 has that, where Jeremiah says that it's, I ate it and it's joy under my heart. You should, you should write that down, put that somewhere in your home as a reminder. I need to get into the word of God. I need to love the word the way that they love the word. Amen. If you wouldn't mind standing. What do we do while we're waiting? We get in the word. What do we do while we're waiting? We believe it. We study it. We live it. How are we going to win people to God? By living the word. That makes us different. We're committed to the word. Get in a prayer closet. Pray the word. People in our world, they're looking for a fresh word. I don't want, I want to obey the forever settled word. That's what I want. I want to get in this word. I want it, I want it in me. I want to hide it in my heart. What does that mean? If someone took your Bible away, how well would you know it? We got to hide it in our hearts. If it's in your heart, they can't take it from you. Amen. I wonder if we could find a place to pray tonight. And we could do that right there. We could recommit ourselves to loving the word and studying the word. I wonder if maybe you're at this point in the year and you're thinking to yourself,